where their queerness fits in with the rest of their identity. It's separate. It hasn't been taught to them the way their culture has. You know, I was raised Jewish. I understand my Judaism. My queerness, I had to sort of fit in with everything else. But if you know your history and if you're exposed to your history and you can see these conversations that the queer community has been having going back decades, centuries, then you understand you're not the first. And that in fact, you come from a long line of, of activists and heroes and artists, and that gives you strength. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so thrilled to be joined with a repeat guest, which I you all know out there, I love having the repeat guests on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So let me read a little about our guests so you can guess Guess, guess. Okay, you can guess who is uh, behind the Zoom screen, so to speak. So, the following guest writes books for people of all ages, most recently Lavender House, which the New York Times says, quote, movingly explores the strain of trying to pass as straight at a time when living an authentic life could be deadly. His prior novel, Camp, which we had him on for, was a best book of the year from Forbes, Elle, and the Today Show. And his next book is called Tennessee Russo, which will be released in May. And I'm sure we'll get into all of that. So I am joined. Title didn't changed actually, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll get into the new title change. So I am joined with Lev A.C. Rosen. Hi, Lev. Hi, thanks for having me back. Of course. And I mean, what a, well, I was going to say such a different change of pace, but I think in some ways in terms of genre, so we're here to talk about Lavender House. And last time we had you talk about camp, which is such a young adult, queer, openly queer um, novel that looks at uh, the dynamics between going away to camp and exploring your sexuality. But now we're more into the hard-boiled detective meets the queer novel type of genre, which is so fascinating. So like, do you see similarities between Camp and Lavender House? I mean, I can if I want to. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. I, I write what interests me and I read widely. So I write widely and I basically just, you know, go to whatever genre story interests me next. Uh, so I don't really think of it as, uh, you know, one evolving to the other, but I think they do both deal with the idea of what a queer space means, uh, and what it is to have sort of a queer community and, uh, what it means for us to sort of maintain and, uh, not patrol, maintain and, 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 and upkeep that queer community, uh, especially when, there are disagreements or, you know, murder inside of it. Uh, so while camp was at this queer summer camp and it was like very happy and it was a rom-com, uh, it was still this queer space. And Lavender House takes place at the titular Lavender House, which is also a queer space. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I think that the genres are, are very different. <laughs> yeah, well, and something that fascinates me is like the young adult, to, well, I mean, I'm reading Lavender House as an adult fiction novel, just in my own head. 
is that how you categorize it? Like, do you consider it adult fiction? Yeah, yeah, it's oh, okay. uh, adult historical fiction. If yeah. I if it was young adult, it would be under L. C. Rosen as opposed to Lev A. C. Rosen. That's how I distinguish. <laughs> well, and so this isn't your first adult fiction or historical fiction novel, is it? Uh, it's not my first adult fiction at all. No, uh, I have two other pieces of adult fiction. Um, one was a steampunk rom-com, so you might be able to call that historical. And the other was a futuristic noir, um, uh, which you cannot really call historical. <laughs> um, so it's my third adult book, uh, but it's the first traditional historical mystery I have written. Yeah, well, and I just love that I, I know this has been shared around a lot, but Lev's book is on BookPage, which is one of my favorite, like library magazines, I guess you would consider it, but The House That Noir Bill, and I'm holding it up for everyone who watches our Patreon videos, that's a plug for Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe on Patreon, uh, where all the video episodes are. But, um, you know, on Instagram, I'll make sure we post this with your book page cover but what did it feel like to actually you know be featured for the november issue and just have the house that knew our bill spread across the cover of the magazine that was exciting i knew they were using the cover uh, a little while before it came out um but i didn't know what like the title or anything was gonna be anything like that until i saw it and i was like oh my goodness this is very fancy and like uh, what's what's the subtitle hold it up again i have my copy in the other room but underneath that, it says like, uh, oh. Lev A.C. Rosen uh, breaks new ground for noir in Lavender House, a compelling queer mystery in 1950s San Francisco. And that part, I was like, I don't know if I'm breaking new ground, guys. That's a bit much. I'm not that cool. Because there are other queer, you know, there's queer historical noir. I'm not the first one to be doing this. Um, but it was it was extremely exciting. And I, I really owe all of it, I would say, not to the book, but to the cover artist, Colin Verdi, who created this amazing illustration and the cover designer, uh, Katie Klimowitz, who did the fonts and, you know, organized the whole cover. It's such a beautiful book. And um, if it weren't for this, I, I think it's the image that really got it on the cover more than anything I did. <laughs> well, because there's this female figure and it's, well, you could describe it, but it's, you know, literally lavender, the color and playing yeah. around with like the flower and intertwining. It's yeah, it has the noir feel to it. Yeah, it's a floral wallpaper with a silhouette of a woman sort of as a spotlight. And there's some rabbits on it. And one of the rabbits is dead and the lavender and the wallpaper pattern is dripping blood. It's really great. There's so many details that I didn't catch at first and like you just keep going back to it and seeing them. And then the actual cover itself, uh, it has like a hidden rabbit in spot gloss on the back, which I love. Oh. And it's got uh, these amazing end pages uh, in the wallpaper pattern, including a hidden rabbit in the back. Oh, I love it. Oh, so yeah, there's literally an Easter bunny, to an Easter egg to look for in yes. this case, the bunny. But um, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great. I think, you know, uh, it, I think the thing with hardcovers is they have to be special in some way. They have to be like works of art. And I think this team really did that. Like it's worth the extra money 
for what this is and what they did for it. Yes, yes. And um, I mean, I know, Lev, you're kind of poo-pooing that you're not breaking new ground for queer noir historical fiction. But I really feel like that's a great opening point because I was even drawn to, and I've shared this with Lev, there's not many, though, openly queer noir um, novels that do what you're doing in the sense of like how we get a police detective who's actually openly gay and in the 1950s like it's not hidden mm -hmm. subtext it's not strangers on a train by hitchcock or by patricia highsmith then hitchcock it's not okay maybe there's some queerness in vertigo or rebecca by daphne du maurier um which your cover kind of reminds me of rebecca um in a great way but um, and I know I think you're a huge fan of the film Laura, aren't you? The noir. I do film? love Laura. Yeah. Okay, I remember reading that, which is such a great film. Yeah. Um, but there is such a even Sunset Boulevard. I mean, which is a great noir film, has a lot of campiness and queerness, but it's not the same in terms of you have a whole cast you're dealing with. Like I kind of consider this. It reminds me of the Clue movie but with all openly queer characters, like that it, it it plays in such a great way of the whodunit. But yeah, so I'm sure there's so much inspiration you have from noir. Like it seems like you're I, oh, yeah, you no, to, I was raised you're a lover. Yeah. I was absolutely raised on those movies. Uh, so that was, that was definitely part of the reason um, uh, that I went there. But there are uh, other authors who uh have done like joseph hansen in like the 70s was writing noir with a gay insurance investigator um and michael nava in the 80s and i think he's doing some period stuff now um so there are other writers who have been doing this but i would agree that um i don't know if uh this sort of setup with an entirely queer cast or nearly entirely queer cast. Uh, I don't know if I've seen that before, although I wouldn't be shocked. You know, <laughs> I, I don't feel like I'm breaking new ground, although I understand why people think that. I think I'm just lucky enough to have written this novel at a time when it could break through and have and, and, and be seen as more than niche literature. Um, uh, and I think I'm very, very lucky because of that. But these are other, you know, there are other great writers, Hanson, Nava, like that I, I highly recommend checking out. Um, but in answer to your question, yes, I love, love, love noir. And I was raised on the films and I've always wanted to play in that sandbox. Um, so getting to do that and queer it, and uh, also get to getting to sort of get into queer history, which I think is so important, was just really exciting to me. Yeah, well, and when you define noir, because I mean, we're just we just keep using the word noir. But I mean, I know you know the genre. I know the genre. I've taught noir films. Chinatown. That's another noir. There's so many noir films that I'm so drawn to. But at the heart of it, it involves a murder. Right, like noir really does have a death. There has to be some death element. I mean, I think noir is more about that feeling of the world closing in on you and that cynicism, the idea that like 
there is no goodness. I think that's at the heart of noir, but that usually comes hand in hand with murder, yes. Uh, um, uh, I, I feel like there are probably some examples of like old deep cuts where maybe it's more of a robbery or something like that. But uh, yeah, no, when I think of noir, I definitely think of murder. I think of um, a detective struggling alone against a force that he knows he will lose to, but he is invested in doing the right thing, even though he himself is sort of a jackass. Um, <laughs> and so that to me is a very noir vibe. The idea of this sort of you know, if you look at the old books, if you read Chandler, there are all these metaphors that have to do with knights and fighting dragons. And I think of that as sort of what noir is in many ways. It's a knight who's realized that they don't live in a fairy tale. And so like they're compelled to do the right thing and they're a tough guy and they're trying to do it, but the world is dark and it has made them cynical and they know that they won't really make a difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is so happy to welcome Broadview Press as our official sponsor. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, they always publish with an eye towards diversity, so there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview anthology of American literature, which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American literary survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. Oh, I love that. Um, how you describe Raymond Chandler's uh, symbolism. But isn't it interesting, though, Lev, that noir, like when it comes to literature, I feel like for film, we have this really clear, or I at least have this really kind of clear image of noir, which is because of the color. Like usually it's black and white, but then there's been some playing around with that with Knives Out, which kind of like brought the noir into a new I'm not sure I'd call knives out noir but that I mean <laughs> I can see why I think his earlier work uh brick which is a brilliant movie that is hardcore noir 
I would say Knives Out is just a murder mystery. Well, so that's what I wanted to ask. Like, what is the difference between, we're kind of like touching upon, like Agatha Christie is usually considered murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, Death on yeah, the Nile. Yeah, and it's interesting because like I did my best to write noir, but the setup for this book is pure Christie. Um, so yeah, I think that for me, noir is about that lone detective sort of against the world and, and hopelessness. I think that's really what I, and trapped, you know, when you think of the visuals of noir and those like Venetian blinds covering people, it's because it was expressing how trapped they were, you know? So that's what I think of noir being, but it can be other things. And like, you know, especially in the film, you, t you know, talk about Laura is a noir film, but it's also very romantic and it ends, even though it ends sort of tragically with some violence and like uh, a, a horrible exposure, it also ends with this couple having found each other and like, you know, facing the world to, and the evil together. And I think that is something that is more in the movies than the books because of the Hayes Code. But um, that sort of hopefulness at the end of some noir film, you see it in The Big Sleep too. That I really love and I tried to infuse, but I tried to make sure my language was noir. To me, Christie is more about, um, in Christie and traditional murder mysteries, you get a sense that justice will prevail, which I don't think you get in noir. And I got that sense in Knives Out, which to me was uh, uh, almost a fable in this guise of a murder mystery. And I love Knives Out, don't get me wrong, but I would consider it, you know, the the, the key, you know, sort of, aspect of it is this woman who throws up when she lies which is a touch of fabulism right there like and so the uh the idea of the crime being solved using that to get a confession that to me it feels very much like a, a fable it feels like we're talking about like you know the you have to sort of hide your goodness to make others expose their badness it feels moral in a way that i would not say noir feels to me yeah and you usually trust you trust the detective carte blanche like in noir you're really kind of questioning the detective's motives and we definitely do that with you know your protagonist in lavender house but like you're having me think about how much we question um you know, in Vertigo, you're you question the actual. Uh, I forget if he's an inspector, detective. I, I, well, oh, that's right because the whole thing is he has Vertigo because, um, with his Vertigo condition, he wasn't able to save his partner at the beginning. And like, yeah, that I haven't seen Vertigo in a real long time, but that sounds right. Yeah, but like another genre that I think is so close, or noir has they all kind of have elements of each other. Like noir is built on the murder mystery, but it also has horror in a way. I mean, there's moments like Psycho is not really about the shower scene. Psycho, there's like an hour of like things you wouldn't consider horror necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like the elements that we usually don't talk about Psycho or even The Shining. I mean, The Shining is really all about psychology mm -hmm. and um, or it, right? I mean, I think Stephen King plays around a lot with psychological horror, which kind of, you know, has elements of noir, but that's what I love is nothing is ever what it is. It's all messy. Like it mm -hmm. all, 
you can defend it in different ways. But like <laughs> there is a horror at the element of Lavender House, which is sexuality, like not being able to be open about, mm -hmm. you know, being openly gay or lesbian or bisexual or even like feeling confident you can call yourself these terms. So I know you have this quote that really is, I'm so incredibly drawn to, which is queer history is always hidden and rewritten in your opinion. Like anyone who does a queer historical novel, or I guess you would just say anyone who's doing queer history in general. So, mm -hmm. you know, what do you mean by that quote, Lev? Well, I think that, it, it, you know, when we look at queer history, it wasn't until, you know, recently even that queer history was taught at all in schools. And uh, usually it was taught starting with Stonewall. But the truth is we existed before that. You know, there, there's the Mattachine Society, which was, a, you know, uh, started in the late 40s, a gay rights organization. And that's the sort of stuff that, we're not taught about and in fact is sort of actively erased from our historical memory because it it goes against the narrative that straight people want about queer history which is that um you know we had this one great uprising and then everything was hunky-dory uh and before that you know it was very sad but it wasn't, you know, queer people didn't really live their lives. They, you know, they weren't living queer lives before that. But, you know, there were gay bars all over San Francisco in the 50s. And, it, 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 you know, it, getting to Lion's Legacy, which is what Tennessee Russo has been renamed, um, that's a book that has to do with the sacred band of Thebes, which goes back to ancient Greece, the whole army of gay people. So, you know, we have this queer history. It's not taught to us. And it's important to me because I think that when queer people come out and they, or at least when they realize they're queer, very often they don't have a culture of queerness that has been taught to them by their parents because most of the time their parents are gonna be straight. And so they can very much feel alone and like they're the first one, not like the first gay person, but the first, gay person in their particular circumstance, the first gay person like this, you know, there's no sense of what that, where their queerness fits in with the rest of their identity. It's separate. It hasn't been taught to them the way their culture has. You know, I was raised Jewish. I understand my Judaism. My queerness, I had to sort of fit in with everything else. But if you know your history and if you're exposed to your history and you can see these conversations that the queer community has been having going back decades, centuries, then you understand you're not the first and that in fact you come from a long line of of activists and heroes and artists and that gives you strength hi this is andrew so as some of you might know i've been such a fan of the gay and lesbian review bi-monthly magazine of history culture and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column. Did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, 
thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. And I think that's really important. And that's why I like exploring queer history. But at the same time, I'm not a historian. I know I'm not a historian. And I think that sometimes pure history books can be somewhat inaccessible, at least for me, I, I read them for research, but I'm not someone who is like, I would love to read this queer history book right now for fun. Um, and so I try to make it what I would think of as fun. Um, and so I put it in to mysteries, to adventure novels, whatever. Uh, and that is to me really exciting and important because there is all this queer history that queer people don't know about and I get to help them know about it. I get to unerase it. Yeah, well, and that's something that I love doing with 19th century literature <clears throat> that I work on with Whitman and Wilde and, mm -hmm. you know, even um, I'm so excited that your next book is about the sacred band of thieves. Because, like, I look into Greek homoerotic myth and how that follows um, queer male authors who can't talk about sexuality because there's really no understanding of homosexuality in the 19th century it doesn't exist mm -hmm. as a identity yeah. i mean right the acts the ident like the behavior exists it's just not a category um yeah so like yeah they rely on the sacred band of thebes from um whitman wild especially wild um who was a greek scholar well New Greek. He was going to become a Greek scholar, but didn't. But um, he would be so excited to hear you having done this historical fiction novel on the Sacred Band of Thebes because it's all well. It's um, not. I mean, it's not historical fiction exactly, but it deals with the Sacred Band of Thebes. Yeah, uh, in that it's it's sort of a YA Indiana Jones vibe, like this teenager Ooh. whose father has a reality show archaeologist and. Uh, they try to find the wedding bands, which are completely fictional, of the sacred band of Thebes, which is a true or a completely real his, uh, gay army in ancient Greece. And so, yeah. you know, temples, traps, stuff like that. So I have a feeling you're going to be using a lot of Greek myths. Uh, just the one. Just the okay. one. Okay. Do yeah. we get any Apollo or... No, no. It's about the no? sacred oh, band. Okay. And so the focus is on... Uh, Hercules and Iolas. Oh, okay. Well, I will have you back with that, Lev. Uh, so that's a teaser for everyone out there. But actually, you do use Greek mythology in Lavender House. Um, like, I remember there's some moments where, like, um, 
some characters are using allusions to Greek mythology. And I found that that was interesting. Pearl is a scholar. Yeah, Pearl yeah. is a scholar who is uh, studied uh, the classics and is very familiar with uh, Sappho, especially. Um, yes. And she talks a little bit about uh, Karen the ferryman and how, you know, you need the two coins on your eyes. And, you know, the, the thing is, the thing that she tells Andy that's important, you know, because Andy has sort of spent his life, well, his recent life being extremely alone. You know, he was a cop, but he and he went to these gay bars and he would just go to the gay bars for physical release, but he wouldn't actually try to befriend anyone. Um, and then he would have his cop life where he also couldn't really befriend anyone because he was afraid they'd figure it out. Uh, and so she points out to him that the only way, you know, I believe he says, you know, two coins seems pretty cheap for a, a trip to the uh, yes. underworld. And she says, yeah, but you have to have someone else to put them on you. And that's really what it's about. This idea of, you know, you need someone there for you when you die to make sure you make it uh, across the river. And that is the, the theme that I think she really wants to uh, impart on him. Yeah. Well, can we just say how eccentric those who are living at Lavender House? It's almost as if they um, are in Grey Gardens. Like I kept thinking of like Grey Gardens and the Bouvier Beals. And I was even thinking like Irene LaMontagne, the soap magnet. Mm -hmm. She almost seems like an Estee Lauder, which I love. I'm like, there's this like eccentric woman who's mysterious and I mean, kind of seem like maybe a Norma Desmond type um, uh, who everyone is kind of tiptoeing around. I don't know if you were like borrowing from Anna Wintour stories of <laughs> no. being a, like this kind of mythology, mythological woman, but like just with Irene, like before we get into Andy and, you know, his queer layers, but just starting with Irene, like why a soap magnet? Like what was so inspiring for you of, okay, this has to be the, like the business that is the entrepreneurial business for the safe house for queer people? Uh, well, uh, it came sort of backwards. Um, like I said, I, uh, I'd always loved noir and I'd sort of been looking for a way to do a queer noir. And it was while I was watching an adaptation of uh, an Agatha Christie book, uh, Ordeal by Innocence. And it was very campy and I enjoyed it very much. And uh, I remember watching it and thinking, this would be so much fun if everyone were gay. And that suddenly became my way in because I was like, I could do that as a noir, even though it's an Agatha Christie setup. Um, and so I started reading and, and, you know, I knew I wanted it united around a lavender marriage, which is when a gay man and a lesbian would marry for appearances. So I, that was the the spark. And since Christie had sort of inspired it, what I did was I started reading some more Christie. And one I liked a lot was Crooked House. And I love the title, too. And I kept thinking to myself, what a great title. I wonder if I could use that. And so I, I was like, I can. I can make it Lavender House for their lavender marriage except if that's the case and they're really calling it Lavender House, they have to have another reason because they can't call it Lavender House for the Lavender Marriage because people will be like, uh, what now? Um, uh, like that would give away the secret. So they had to have another reason. So they must have lavender growing around 
And I was like, why would they have lavender growing around? And that's when uh, I realized it would either be perfume or soap. And I went with soap because it meant it, it was scarier. You know, it meant everyone had to stay squeaky clean. You look at 1950s soap ads, which I started to do like religiously after I figured that out. And like that model of a heteronormative family is what they have to perform in order to sell their soap. And so that was much higher stakes than like sort of sexy perfume. Um, and that's that's why it was soap, uh, because of the title. <laughs> it was backwards. Yeah, yeah. Are you surprised? Am I the first one who's talked about Grey Gardens with you? Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I oh, don't good. Quite see the comparison, but I'm glad you do. <laughs> well, I think it's more in the campiness because like talk about a campy mother. Um, mm -hmm. It's because of the mother uh, daughter bond. And you have that playing around with, um, you know, the family connections with Irene. Mm -hmm. Like it's not Irene and unknown people. It's Irene and family members with yeah. strangers. And so. yeah, there is definitely a sort of campiness that I like love to do because you know you you look at old noir now and it has a camp aspect you think of like lauren bacall asking if anyone you know has a light or knows how to whistle um and those are now campy moments um but they're still great moments and so getting to walk up to that line and try to get that happening that was really fun yeah well and something that you've touched upon but to go in a little depth with the history is like Andy, you said he went to the our detective uh, for everyone out there. He's our, where we follow all the journey is through our noir detective, Andy. And um, I find it so interesting though, that you really had to pour over, over um gay bars that would have existed. And like, there was one specifically called the black cat that yeah. you talk about in this uh, really cool. I'll put it in our show notes. Um, but it's, you wrote this whole blog or article for crime reads on mm -hmm. the big sleep and the black cat. So like, you know, how did you find out about this bar? Like uncover this history? Uh, it was at a museum. Um, I don't, it, it must've been the San Francisco museum. And uh, I think it was just on San Francisco history and there was a sign for the black cat and it was like one of the oldest gay bars and there were the dates on it. And I was like, whoa, we had gay bars way back then. Why don't I know about this? And this is years and years ago, um, like over a decade. And that was sort of what inspired me to sort of start looking into queer history, which is how I, uh, 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 you know, how we arrive at where we are today, I suppose. But um, one of the reasons I really wanted to include the black cat is because in that, the reason I, is, is, is the same reason I set it in 1952, which is that this was a moment uh, in queer history that is uh, intensely liberating because before this, uh, in, 40s and up to like 50 um if you had a group of queer people congregating anywhere it was considered a house of ill repute like a brothel and so you could not serve alcohol 
Um, and that's how they raided gay bars and shut them down. They would go in and they'd be like, seems like a bunch of gays are here and you can't be a bar anymore. We're going to take away your liquor license. Um, uh, you're serving gay people. That's not allowed. And the owner of the Black Cat, uh, a straight man, sued the state of California and won. The California Supreme Court said, you're right. Gay people should be allowed to gather and drink. I don't know why that's illegal. Uh, and so all of a sudden, gay bars were legal. The Supreme Court did lay out, the state Supreme Court did lay out that it was still illegal to be gay in that they were not allowed to dance, touch, commit immoral acts, etc. But they could hang out, say they were gay, and drink. That was legal. And it was a huge moment because all of a sudden, you know, the police would still raid all these bars and they would, you know be looking for immoral acts to shut down the bar because then it went back to brothel status, I guess. Um, or, uh, you know, they would plant drugs, underage drinkers, whatever. They were still looking for reasons to shut these places down. But they didn't have the main one they relied on anymore, which is there are gay people here. And so it was a huge advancement for gay rights. And I really wanted to explore that period because it is sort of more freedom but also a lot more danger because of that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well and you get into that i don't want to again i'm not going to give it all away because there's so much well i'm not gonna we're definitely not going to give away who you know murders our soap magnet because mm -hmm. uh, that would be the no-no uh but i do love though what you deal with and now knowing you kind of go further into antiquity and war in your next work um you kind of already lay a seed for that which is thinking about world war ii and mm. the homoerotic desire and and it's true there's so many poets i mean especially with world war one um i'm thinking of like wilfred owens and um the others will come to me but um that there's this whole tradition of the world wars and how openly homoerotic and how the drag shows and there was so much almost like male fluidity with sexuality but at the end of the day like you're saying there's this openness but there's also the backlash and like you can't mm -hmm. you know you can't call yourself um you can't embrace an identity that is against being straight like you could do all these acts, but you can't actually live a gay um, identity. So yeah, it's well, this back and forth. And I find that it's interesting I mean, you how can, you can, as long as you're willing to sacrifice, you know, being a part of mainstream society. But there were absolutely sort of, you know, you look at the first openly trans woman return. Well, not the first, sorry, that was, that's completely wrong. The first very publicly, let's say trans woman uh, returned to the United States in 52, the end of 52. No. Yeah, 52. Christine, Christine, oh boy, Jorgensen. Yes, no, I know who you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so like these, you know, she lived her life and, uh, you know, she these people were living their lives. It's just that they, they had to live sort of separated lives because if uh, they were found out by their landlords they could get kicked out of their homes um, and you know their families they might be disowned and the World War II 
uh, you know, they could get blue ticketed, which means they would lose all of their uh, benefits from being part of the army. Um, and I get more into World War II in the sequel, uh, but there's a great book called Coming Out Under Fire, mm. which is all about the queer community during the war and how the way that the war sort of funneled people to these urban areas and so queer people started finding each other uh, created big queer communities. Um, and at the same time, because it created these queer communities, the army and navy and military sort of became more aware of the queer communities. So while at first there was a lot of freedom, by the end of the war, all of a sudden they were like, wait a second, we need to crack down on this. And so when the war ends, all of a sudden we get not only a return to sort of normalcy in the 1950s and this heteronormative, but uh, the we get this sort of enforcement now because people are more aware of queerness because they gathered all the queer people together and you get the lavender scare. Um, and so it's really fascinating watching these things happen. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> more freedom, you know, there's stories of guys just fully making out on ships and, uh, and their captains being like, can you just move so we can see the enemy ships? Um, you know, so it, on some level, there was all this freedom. Uh, Cliff in Lavender House talks about how he was uh, part of the USO and he was a performer. And after a performance, he'd have men lining up out the door with flowers for him. That's a real thing. Performers would have uh, men lining up to give them flowers and sleep with them sometimes. So like during yeah, the I was going to say, I don't think they were just giving him flowers. Well, sometimes maybe they maybe. were. Maybe. Well, some were very they nice. They were trying yeah, to sleep with them often. There wasn't always a motive. Successful every time. Um, maybe with Cliff. <laughs> but uh, the so like there is this freedom but it results in this visual, uh, it results in visibility, which results in a backlash. And I think that's just sort of how things go. And it's interesting because living through all that, living uh, through the rise of, of visibility rights mm -hmm. and then backlash feels akin to living today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say there's some there's a contempor a contemporaneous uh mm -hmm. and that's parallel. why it's so important to see our history because like seeing the lavender scare, knowing about the lavender scare, which was in many ways even more intense than the red scare, but the red scare is all we learn about in school. Um uh, you know, seeing that that has happened before gives you the strength to see how things might go today and understand that we have lived through this before and survived it. And that is uh, an important thing, I think. Hey, True Crime and Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. Listen, the holidays are literally right around the corner. And I know that some of you are scrambling to find that gift for that person on your list who is just so difficult to buy for because they have everything. Or you're sitting there in your home and you're realizing that there is this space in your house that just is begging to be decorated, but you don't know what to put there. Well, I'm here to tell you that Mandy Made It has the answers to all of your holiday needs. Mandy Made It makes the best handmade crochet and cricut items I have ever seen. And I mean, literally, she can make anything. The customization options are literally endless. So go to at Mandy Made It 
on Instagram and search Mandy Made It on Facebook. Slide into her DMs and order your customized holiday gifts and decorations today. That's at Mandy Made It on Instagram. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Once again, search Mandy Made It on Instagram and Facebook. Slide in her DMs and order your gifts or holiday decorations today. As a Long Islander, I was so excited when I finally found a med spa that totally matched everything I wanted. I was looking for a good facial place, a good place that had skin products. And guess what? In my hometown now of Port Jeff Village, there is Skin Med Spa. And I'm here with the owner, Lauren, who's going to explain to you all what kinds of services are offered, products that are offered, and you know why you should come to Skin Med Spa if you're in the Long Island or New York City area. Well, we wanted to open up a place that was offering all holistic natural treatments that were really providing results driven, um, where someone could come in, maybe struggling with acne and has tried so many different products and they couldn't find what's right for them. So we customize all treatments to really help you dive into your skincare goals, whether it's anti-aging rejuvenation, like I said, acne, just to help with cellular turnover, focus on building healthy skin. Um, we have two locations. We have skin and spa and body right here in Port Jeff village. And again, we focus on all natural plant-based skincare. We'll help you design a good custom skincare line for you. And we'll help you find the right treatments, whatever your skin needs. Yeah. So Lauren and Sarah, they know that I get a cupping here. I get hydrofacials with Rosie. I get jet peel facials with Lauren. Everything here is so wonderfully curated, like Lauren said. And there's just any kind of product. Oh, I know there's now laser hair removal. I mean, there's always a new product being offered. So everyone out there who's listening, if they want to come to Skin Med Spa in Port Jeff Village, how can they find you and get in touch? We're really active on social media. So at Skin Med Spa PJ on Instagram, that's the best way you could probably find us because we really try to post daily updates of our clients and who's coming in and the treatments that we're doing. Um, and of course, on our website, there's always links to how to book an appointment. But everything we do when you call us, that's always the best way. We answer the phone and we'll talk forever and help you find whatever is perfect for you. Okay, well, hopefully Lauren gets to meet you all. Say that you heard Skin Med Spa's ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and maybe I'll see you all here. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, and it really all comes down to censorship of ideas, of especially progressive ideas or these open, especially with McCarthyism and... Mm -hmm the Red Scare, that it was really a lot of Hollywood intellectuals who were kind of trying to fight against those censorship, the censorship system of what was happening in films. And I don't know, I always talk about how Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland were on that list and they don't mm -hmm. get talked about. Oh, and Lena Horne. I mean, there is a lot who are trying for progress. Um, but something that, oh, it, it's Christine Jorgensen. I did a little research uh, of yes, the first Morgan. transgender woman. Um, who comes... I, I feel uncomfortable calling her the first, but the first very publicly transgender yeah. woman feels not too... Public figure, public figure. Yeah, let's that. say that. I'm oh, sure yeah. someone will tell us we're wrong and we probably are and I respect And that's okay. They could, yeah. But, but like, uh, yeah. In a Hollywood image way. 
Um, yeah, yeah it was, it was uh, operated as a uh, uh, you know a nightclub act for a decade after coming back uh, after her transition. Sort of the uh, yeah 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 it was extremely successful with the act too, from what I yeah. remember. Okay, I think, I think yeah. for a while I gotta look into that, but yeah, really, yes. it's funny yeah. the things that we forget or the yeah. things that are taken from our memories, really. Of course, well, and um. Something that has always been, I'm sure you've had to look into this, is why lavender as the color? Like, why is it the lavender scare? Why is it the lavender marriage? Like, what is it about lavender that's just so queer? Like, this is our queer coding. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I didn't look into it. But I'm, I just always assumed because it's femme. <laughs> like, it's a femme color. It's not pink because... Uh, pink is like the baby girl color so lavender is what's left and it's like i'm sure there's a reason i'm sure a historian will tell us a reason well you know what everyone dm ivory tower boiler room and i'll let we'll share it on our story i would love that actually but i'm thinking maybe it's also like a blend right it's not purple well mm -hmm. purple is a blend i think anyway of primary colors but regardless it's it's you can kind of see lavender but you actually it's not a color on the wheel. Like it's not something that we all can point to. We all have different, I'm going very deep in my theory, but <laughs> we all have different interpretations of the color. It's kind of like if we said burgundy or mm -hmm. maroon, right? It's not red, it's not mm -hmm. pink, it's the in-between. I don't, well, I kind of like that queering of lavender. There we go. <laughs> well, so, you know, as we are like, nearing the end you said something about your sequel so when is your sequel coming out to lavender house the sequel is called the bell in the fog and it should be out next october um uh, yeah i'm excited for it. It, it you know without getting too spoilery the way lavender house sets up the ending is andy is given the opportunity to essentially start a detective agency uh focusing on queer people in 1952 and he does um and he you know and one of the things he reckons with in lavender house is it as in his time as a cop he didn't really help the queer community you know he managed to avoid all these raids but he never warned anyone and so he he has to reckon with the fact that you know he thinks he joined to help people but he wasn't helping the people who needed it the most who were, you know, his community. And so now he's going to try to fix that, except he was a cop. And so no one really trusts him to go to him with their cases. And so he's having a hard time making it work. You know, he's just picking up sleazy cases here and there. Um, and then he walks into his office and a mysterious figure from his past is there to hire him. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. I will say some other characters from Lavender House continue um including more minor ones uh there is uh a a minor character who becomes much more major in the sequel um and one of the cast of suspects becomes uh you know uh continues on in the next book and okay. by the time you get to the end of the book it becomes pretty clear who that would be <laughs> but um yeah uh, and then there's a cameo from one other. <laughs> well, I have to say, without giving anything away from Lavender House, I love this. I love whenever Andy is flirting 
like debating, is he actually going to make out with Cliff or is he going to let Cliff, you know, uh, put his hand all the way up his leg? Like, I hope there's a lot of those moments. There's homoerotic, psychological, tense moments there. Uh, it's so 50s. I mean, there's a sex scene in the sequel. I can tell you that okay. much. I mean, we're not done with that. Yet, so who knows? But there's currently a sex scene. Well, if there's any role playing with uh, little Edie in the sex scene, <laughs> I yeah. know what happened. I'll be like, Lev, he took my Grey Gardens idea. No, <laughs> that would be an odd. That would be, an be odd weird and also psychic, I think. So, <laughs> well, that's true. That would be a revolutionary costume moment that I don't think anyone needs in the bedroom. There's a character who, uh, does he wear a scarf around his head like that? No, he doesn't. Uh, he has a scarf, but he like wear, like there's a lot of scarves to hide people in various scenarios, but none of them do the wrapped around the head thing. I don't, I don't think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe well, that's already in there and you could be. Oh, we'll have to see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, um, you know, one of my like final moments is just, I finally went to San Francisco for a conference on queer history in June and absolutely fell in love with the city. And I find that it's so interesting. Like, I know there's a reason that it's San Francisco and not say, New York City and like the history of the gay bars there or Hollywood, which there's a history, um, you know, or why is the Lavender House not on Fire Island? Um, mm. You know, so like, what is it? Is it because dealing with the other cities would have been, well, because you live in New York, there's that burden maybe, or is it because the Hollywood industry, then you'd have to deal with the film noir and it's, no, complicated. Uh, none of that. Uh, I, I, you know, originally I did think it was going to be a New York set series, but um, as I did research on the various queer communities in these different cities, what I discovered is that um, m many of them, New York especially, uh, the queer community was heavily stratified. Mm -hmm. So there were the rich white gays, uh, you know, in Manhattan. Then you had poor Latine gays uh, out on Coney Island. Um, you had all these different uh, queer communities, but they didn't intersect as much. And the same in Los Angeles. Um, there was sort of the wealthier ones and then the activist ones and the poor ones. And um, I wanted, since I knew I was setting it up as a series, I wanted more fluidity between those communities and San Francisco had that. Um, San Francisco partially because of, you know, it's on the forefront of uh, gay rights at the time um, because of the bars. There are, uh, there is more overlap. Uh, people would go to different bars. Um, the Tavern Guild, which is a early gay rights organization um, I think it founded in the late 50s was when a bunch of gay bar owners got together and we're talking, you know, lesbian bar, we're talking uh, the gay bar, we're talking, you know, all these different people, they get together and that fluidity was important to me. And I really get to explore it a lot more in the sequel, which is sort of about, yes, the, the war um, and Andy's past, but also about 
the queer community in San Francisco in the form of these various bars. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't go back to the Black Cat because it's a real historical place, but I have three bars that I based on actual San Francisco bars that were like pretty famous. So there is um, a version of Mona's, which was this great lesbian bar, um, very famous in San Francisco, um, and which uh, uh, Melinda Lowe in Last Night on the Telegraph, Cl Last Night at the Telegraph Club, the book that won the National Book Award, brilliant book, 1950s San Francisco lesbians, um, uh, YA, she, uh, the Telegraph Club is inspired by Mona's as well. So like we're, and we both use the same research book too. We've talked about it. Um, which is called Wide Open Town by Nan Alamilla Boyd, which is the history of queer San Francisco up until 1965. Uh, really wonderful book. I, I've, you know, I keep going back to it and finding new things. Um, and then there's uh, Finocchio's, which is another great gay bar that I am inspired by. And then uh, there's another that sort of inspired by Jack's on the Waterfront and sort of inspired by some other places. Uh, but it's sort of that proto-leather uh, vibe. And so I got to explore, you know, these different queer communities. And that was that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to have someone who could move between all the queer communities. And I didn't see a way to justify that as easily in any other city uh, aside from San Francisco. Yeah, well, I think San Francisco, when I visited, like I want to go back uh, soon, I just fell in love with its. I mean, I'm still a New Yorker. I love New York City. Um, I will <laughs> not, you know, I like visiting San Francisco, but it has this noir. It felt very noir just as a city, too, mm -hmm. like with the hills and the He's homes. Talking, and yeah, it's like even with the sunset and you're looking down the hills and seeing the Victorian houses, it's all, um, it is kind of a a chic meets classic. I don't know, it's hard to capture. It's very different than Hollywood and New York City. So mm -hmm. And it's still I'm, a classic yeah. noir town, you know? That's where a bunch of these stories took place. Yes, yes. So, you know, I am so excited that you came here, Lev. I can't wait to have you back. Well, you know, now you have like two books that are coming out within a year. I have year three books so. out next three year. Three books. Okay, well... I'll have you back on, you know, at least to discuss the sequel, or maybe you can foreshadow the sequel and we'll talk about the Sacred Band of Thebes, um, which I think is in the summer, right? This next- uh, May is Lion's Legacy, which is the YA sort of Indiana Jones digging up queer history. The Bell in the Fog will be October. And then in November, I have Emmett, which is a contemporary- queer retelling of Jane Austen's Emma. Wow. Okay. Congratulations, Lev. I'm so excited you. for you. I'm like, you're just like, check, check, check. It'll be real um, busy. I'm going to, I'm probably going to lose my mind. Uh, okay. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> but you keep, you know, it seems like you're someone who loves your deadlines. Like, uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's all of us who are writers, right? Sometimes, well, we need the push. We all need the push. Um, but again, like, is there any update you can give about Camp and Billy Porter? Has anything? No. No, I'll talk no. about it. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay. You can't talk about it. I'm not allowed to say anything. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good sign. Okay. 
Um, but okay. So Lavender House, has there been any? I'm sure there's been buzz about filming. If there were, I wouldn't be allowed to say anything. Lev, <laughs> oh, what are you doing <laughs> to me? I am doing what I my film agent would tell me to do. I'm not allowed to talk about this stuff until it is announced. Essentially, I'm not allowed to give you any information that isn't public. Oh, okay. Yeah, so once it becomes a headline... <laughs> You could talk all about it. It's okay. Don't worry. Gregory Maguire has done the same with the Wicked movie. <laughs> um, well, he's given us some insider info, but, you know, it's all kind of speculations. Um, so maybe you can speculate when you're back on, Lev, when it's announced. If I were when to speculate, I would say that, you know, stuff happens and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're tight-lipped. I like it. Okay. <laughs> but, um... I also really want to shout out um, your audiobook performer for Lavender House. Oh yeah, um, because he is amazing. Very good. Yes, it's again. I mean, I always love audiobooks, but I feel like Lavender House just um, that that noir genre plays mm -hmm. so well as an audiobook. Yeah, um, and I knew I wanted someone who can get that sort of gravelly tone and walk up to that line of camp and nail it. And uh, I, I was so lucky on tour, I got to meet him in person, which I've never done with any of my narrators. Um, and he's a delight, just one of the most charming men I've ever met. And he's so funny. And during the performance, he would, when he was working on stuff, he would text me about like pronunciation of stuff. And, you know, <laughs> he would send me these audio texts like, so is it this or this? And I would be like, it's so exciting that you're saying these things. And I would have to do audio text back and hear my voice like, the, well, it's La Monte sounding like Fran Drescher or something. And then he would do it and it would sound so elegant. Uh, but he, I, I think he's so talented. Uh, so many people who have listened to the audiobook have been shocked it's all one person because the voices are so different. It's just, no, it's incredible. Yeah, he, it, it's really so impressive. Yeah. 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 Well, I was going to say, I thought I was actually interviewing Billy Eichner about bros when I was talking to you, Lev. So <laughs> I'm disappointed. No, just, I love, no, you and Billy Eichner do have a similar cadence. Well, I mean, two gay Jews from New York City. Yes, that's exactly what it is. That's what bonds <laughs> you together. Uh, Seth Rudetsky. You know, just, <laughs> let's just, <laughs> let's play the who's gay and Jewish. From if you would like yeah. me to, I can do my straight voice for you. I could do the interview in the straight. No, I love your voice, Lev. Please <laughs> don't change your voice. It is so good. I always, your voice is what, you know, is your authenticity. So I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, well, thank you, Lev. Please, everyone out there, get your hands on Lavender House. Get your ears listening to Lavender House. Um, all the links are in our show notes. And yeah, thank you for coming back on, Lev. This is, as always, I always love our conversations. Yes, thank you so much for having me back. Of course. Okay, bye, Lev. Bye. <laughs>
The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. And scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But first, it's only $5, which is less than a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical. If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should, because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer. So much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But if you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room? And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, true crime friends and ivory tower boiler room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content that includes true crime and academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it, literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but we could use a little bit more if you don't Oh, mind. yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com to actually order our merchandise. So mm -hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room logo, we're gonna make it happen for you. Okay, on that note, happy winter season, everyone. Happy winter. <laughs>